Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green and Hank Steamer, and we're here to pay some tribute to the life and music of Neil Peart, the great drummer and lyricist for Rush, who just died at age 67 and left fans and his family pretty devastated. And the fans are all over the world. And the outpouring for him, I think, was maybe more than even he would have expected. I wish he could have seen it. I think it it showed that he's a a figure who transcended even just Rush fans. Like, he was a a beloved musical icon. I think we saw that for sure. Yeah, and I think part of the shock we're all feeling is no one even knew that he was sick. So to go straight to dead was so jarring and upsetting last week. I mean, I'm still in shock. Yeah, they kept it very effectively, kept it as a closely guarded secret to protect his family's privacy. And so for everyone who wasn't a very close confidant, it was basically a total shock. Uh, So we're going to be talking about Neil's life. We're going to start, though, by playing some of a conversation I had with him in 2015. I was looking at the transcript. There's 40,000 words of conversation between me and Neil Peart. It was for Rolling Stone's first cover story on Rush, of our very belated first cover story on Rush, which, yeah, took until 2015, but at least we got to do it. And I was with the band while they rehearsed for what turned out to be their final tour. This interview took place right after I actually sat in on the rehearsals for a few hours. And I remember I was I was wearing like in-ear monitors given to me by the band because otherwise I wouldn't hear Getty's vocals because there was no PA, obviously. They were just rehearsing with the... But if I took them out, I would hear a lot of Neil's drums live and unamplified and directly. And it made a physical impact on me that I still can remember. And I remember watching him play from extremely close up. I mean, we're talking about a a tiny concrete room. And when he hit a snare drum, his chin would vibrate from the energy. Like, that's how hard he played. It was a very memorable experience. We talked a little bit at the studio. Then we got in his Aston Martin, the James Bond car, and drove to his office nearby. And his office doubled as a car garage for all his, his sick vintage car collection, of which the Aston Martin was just part and we sat down and he, he poured us some whiskey and you can hear some ice cubes clinking and stuff. And uh, I started out by asking him about the fact that Rush had, were kind of hedging their bets a little bit. They kind of called it their last tour. They were saying it's their last major tour. They were holding, they were holding out some hope. But I asked him about the fact that, that they were billing it like that. I joked, I said, we should call it the R40 anniversary farewell comeback reunion tour <laughs> and get it all done at once. Uh-huh. Right? But then as time went on and our plans came together, we thought, you know what, this is just the 40th anniversary tour and, and we'll decide. And maybe we want to make another record together, you know. Maybe we want to continue this tour. We've loved the process of um, uh, putting together the set list, for example. And a trick we only learned last tour, and some things you're so slow to learn, it's remarkable. Because in the past, if we had too many songs, we would either dump the ones, or we'd play too long. You know, we'd play a show that would include that. Okay, well, we got to do that, and got to do that, and our shows got longer and longer, and again, particularly for me, killing. Uh, Stuart Copeland and I have an agreement on that, that um, drumming is the hardest job. Singing is the worst job, <laughs> but drumming is the hardest job. Right. So, yeah, our shows would just get longer and longer, and um, so last tour we introduced alts, where um, we had show A and show B, right. and alternated different songs so that we could play more. Right. And this tour, uh, this tour, we're up to like... Um, three different all 
faults of oh, the fans will be both happier sides. than that about than anything. That's well, then no, but there's disappointment because you miss. Right. right. Oh, yeah. they're not playing that tonight. Oh, they go from show to show. That's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it's, of course, it's the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and um, and we never have to face the painful choice of. Are, you, are your are your forearms hurting you right now? That, uh, you no, it's got yeah. a bit of an itch there. Got, oh, okay. uh, so I no, I could I, I hurt all over. And, <laughs> no, um, they feel like they weigh a hundred pounds. Yeah. Popeye. Do you lift weights as well? Do you do? Mm. Yeah. Because I I come in in, in terrific shape. But nothing prepares you for hitting things as hard as you can all day long. Because it's not the motion, it's the stopping. <laughs> right? Right. The people we get, and, and I, um, my brother is a professional trainer um, by profession. And he was saying, yeah, they, they call it sports specific training. That certain things, if you're going to be a cyclist, you right. can practice cycling. If you're going to be a swimmer, like that. And drumming, yeah, the, the only training for drumming really is drumming because it's the impact that kills. And uh, again, I got better at it over time in my motion and my bounce. I used the bounce much more than, than I did before, thanks to Freddie Gruber's training. But still, you're hitting things as hard as you can and kicking them as hard as you can all day long. So it's, it's going to hurt. And, and over time, again, it is an athletic endeavor. So I'm, I'm glad I've been able to keep my peak as long and, and still feel like I'm getting better, really. I was thinking about a, a Buddy Rich quote when he, he was asked, you know, what do you think about being the greatest drummer in the world? And he said, you know what, dummy, the way Buddy would say it, you don't achieve greatness. If you work hard at it, you achieve a certain amount of goodness. And then you just try to preserve that. And he said, I've never been happy with anything I've done, but I keep trying. Bingo, you know? And and I feel the evolution of my playing, and I, I love to feel it uh, in the, con- the control of time and technique and and touch and all those little elements of technique that I've worked on over time um, to feel them come out. And a lot of times, the nature of study, like I was saying before, I thought I got this place never imagining what a great creative environment would be. It was just a storage place at first. And when I studied with Peter Erskine in uh, 2008 or so, I just wanted to work on my swing drumming stuff. I was going to do another big uh, Buddy Rich tribute at the time. And I thought, okay. And there was one um, chart of Buddy's called Love for Sale that was... Uh, when I produced the album back in the 90s, Steve Gadd just did a superb masterpiece job on it. And I just loved the arrangement and all that. And I thought, okay, that's my goal. I want to do my my version of sure. Love for Sale. So I got Peter's help on that. And again, we were we had a bit of time on that. So I was able to practice every day uh, with the exercises that he gave me. But the great gift... Um, and, and this is something uh, you were saying you played a little bit in, in a stringed instrument. Yeah, I played okay. little guitar. Yeah. So you'll, you'll get this. There's like a kind of a metronome uh, that's called a quiet count, and it gives you two bars of click and then two bars of silence. Huh. And you have to come in. So every day my assignment from Peter was to set it for one slow tempo. So you get two bars of really super slow tempo and then these big two empty bars, right? And to try to come in on time right. and um, I was just playing hi-hat which yeah. made it easier because even at my house in Quebec which is on a lake drums would not be um, socially acceptable to a hi-hat and a click track that's all I had but with this quiet count every day I picked one slow tempo a different one every day and one fast tempo and played along with that and, and playing too not just keeping time but right. riffing you know because hi-hat's a very expressive little instrument and uh, every day I did that and at the end of it I had such a consciousness of time that I could hear that click when it wasn't Mm. And then when I improvised, um, 
like I was always a compositional drummer through all of our formative years and my drum solos were always composed and then I would you know riff within the framework but it was all pretty tightly structured to guarantee um, consistency right so I could give a good performance every time and then um, my my first uh, my second drum teacher actually Freddie Gruber in the 90s said you're a composer you're a comp compositional drummer I can see you composing while you do it and I thought, oh yeah that's great yeah I'm a compositional drummer then but I want to be an improvisational right. drummer, right? right? I wanted the other thing. So I deliberately set out to chase it. And it sounds how contradictory, right? I set out methodically to, to become spontaneous, but it's exactly what you have to do. And I learned that, and that learning that confidence with time was the springboard. Suddenly I could improvise so freely because the pulse was always almost palpable when mm. I play. And it was no more like, oh God, I'm going out there. It's like, oh, okay. I can do this. And it was a, a, a revelation, a new world, and it took years of, of my own development and then his um, teaching, which wasn't aimed at that. And same with Freddie, wasn't aiming to take me where he took me. He just watched me play for about a minute and, and gave me what he thought I needed. You know, and, and in neither of those cases could I have imagined that Freddie's teaching all these years later still nurtures me and, and what Peter gave me, that gift of improvisation and confidence in tempo. And I showed you my little metronome and all right. that, and I, and I almost, I almost don't use it now, and except unless I'm giving the guys a count in, or if the guys say, "Oh, that's felt a bit slower, faster." No, <laughs> right? <laughs> because you know, those kind of arguments are pointless, and everybody's clock is a little different every day. And uh, there are definitely times we used to notice that mixing as you get tired, the song seems faster and faster. Right. You know, there are little um, perception things like that. So if I just have that there too, you know, or if, if Alex wants to set his echoes, I can tap out the tempo for him. But the old songs, I don't use it on the old kid because I thought, no, I'm going to play these. And some of them I didn't even listen to. I thought, no, I don't want to play it as it was, you know, the way I played as a, um, you know, a dumb 22-year-old. I want to play that song the way I would play it now. And the other ones that where I did want to replicate the performance, it was like, what? What was I, you know, well, I would never put a crash cymbal there now, things like that. Right. And uh, deciding how much to um, replicate that time. And again, I can play those odd times and all that so much more fluidly hmm. than I could in those days. Because in the late 70s and so when we were doing, like I always look at La Villa Strangiato as an example, it was subtitled plainly an exercise it's self-indulgence and all of the themes are drawn from Alex's crazy dreams right because every morning you know he'd get you know oh I had this dream last night and this happened and we'd be like stop oh my head <laughs> so it was deliberately tongue-in-cheek the whole thing but it was us learning to play all this intricate stuff and more so learning to arrange arranging and I, I was doing an interview with a drum uh, journalist in um, UK the other day and it came to me about all that stuff because yeah we were learning to play our instruments learning to write songs and all that but arrangement like big band music is all about the arrangement the best of progressive rock in the late 60s and that was arrangement you know that's really the magic and, and that we spent the most time learning and that I think speaks most of our progress in uh, in um, modern times especially the snakes and arrows and clockwork angels and the arrangements are so concise given the fact that we're not limited by a three minute or sure. repeating chorus formula or anything but what we can do with an arrangement and get the dynamics and the melodic flow and the phrasing vocal phrasing in uh, that we want um, that's that's what we have really built you know over time with musical confidence and, and spending the time 
in pre-production and spending the time in, in uh, recording and all that. You you love. I've learned a lot of music that you know one might not expect you to love, given like a, a cliche idea of a virtuoso, what a virtuoso drummer might love. But would you like a lot of music? You love a very wide variety. But but it sounds like you would like if if you had Charlie Watts's gig, you'd go crazy, right? You would not enjoy that at all. No, a lot of music that I love, I couldn't stand to play reggae. Yeah. Could not stand. I love to listen to it, but I'm 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 too busy. Right. <laughs> you know, I have too many ideas. But here's a beautiful anecdote. Cover that. Uh, years ago, I was traveling in West Africa, and um, traveling around by bicycle, so necessarily from village to village and um, far as far back in the world and and time as you can go. And uh, we we would come upon these little performances, and sometimes the village would put on a performance for us, and there would be a drum. Oh, was this when they gave you the drum to play with the stick yeah. and you wanted to do something? Yeah, and I was trying to do something. Yeah, yeah. grabbed my hand. <laughs> and then at one point, it, um, it was a curved stick. Yeah. I was supposed to go yeah. bink, 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 bink. And then I started doing stuff with my other hand and all that. No. And then I tried putting the stick down. <laughs> no. You have one part to play. And it's like classical music. Yeah. Right? Af- African music, by tradition, is a storytelling narrative form that has very strict rules. And yeah, you have to, I get it. And, and that's that's your assigned part, as as much as if it was written on a chart. But it does not allow for improvisation. And uh, yeah, sim- simplicity and repetition are valuable essences in music for sure. But they can absolutely be used. They can be either a tool or a trick, like so many things, right? Simplicity is not wrong at all. It's, it's soft and very beautiful, of course. And repetition is so powerful if it's used as a tool. But and then, of course, um, anybody that finds a way to use tricks like that, right? Then it becomes um, commercialized. It's not an. It's not a language of communication anymore. It's a tool of marketing. That's it. Virtuosity in rock is an interesting thing because. Theoretically, right? It's not supposed. That's rock is supposed to be this sim- supposed to be mm-hmm. this simplistic move. It's an interesting thing to be a virtuoso within rock, you know. Um, it, and of course, it wasn't always that way. Yeah. And uh, talking to this drum journalist the other day, he was saying, "Well, the the gap between jazz and rock has never been wider." And at the time in the late '60s, they were right, and the, the fusion years, my right. vision orchestra right. were accepted as a rock band. Right. Um, and there wasn't that divide, uh, and it's. I have to think cycles cycles will yeah. bring it around again. You have to hope people still love the instrument and they love to see virtuosity on the instruments, obviously. And it gets poisoned in, in like all styles. And also I have a theory that like in the 50s, um, surf music and um, uh, guitar music came along and then the Phil Spector wall of sound and production became huge and people couldn't do that at home in their garages. So... It shrunk back to the early 60s. Guitars and drums, we can do this in the garage. And then by the late 60s, it got so technically hard, right? Like, I started playing in 65, when all you had to do was play Wipeout and a Ringo beat. Right. And you were a good rock drummer. Right. Suddenly, Mitch Mitchell comes along, Keith Moon, Ginger Baker, Michael Jaws from um, King Crimson, Phil Collins with Jensen. Okay, that's how good I have to be. Okay, that's how good I have to be. Okay, that's... <laughs> It was like that, but in a very inspiring way to me. Um, and then it became too difficult for a garage band, so punk came. Right. You know, blow all that shit that, you know, and it had become pretentious as a, as a, 
if you look at the real meaning of people pretending, right. yeah, they're getting, oh yeah, it'd be cool to play these epic rock things with right. the keyboards up. It wasn't real anymore. For us, it was so authentic, so real, so sincere, you know, that we were getting better and learning how to play these songs. And I grew up as those bands came along. Well, I guess I would argue that they, for you guys, the difference for me between you guys and some of what people think of kind of the worst, perhaps, of progressive rock in the sound is that you would play this stuff with kind of the fury of a punk band. You know, and the commitment. I mean, I... I, I that, sincerity that's is always the, the case. Maybe the sincerity. Do you know yeah. Nick, Nick Hornby? Yes. The British writer? Yeah. He writes a lot about pop music. Yeah. And he was saying in one of his that when he has... Uh, when he knows young people who are just getting into rock music, he said, whoever you listen to, make sure they mean it. Right. Right? right. And that became the difference. So I want to take a moment and talk about Vivid Seats. Staying at home is great, but eventually you just got to get out of the house. Whether you go out to see your favorite band or go cheer on your favorite team in person, you got to get out of the house. You got to have a night out. And with Vivid Seats, you can attend the concert of your choice, the sports event of your choice, whatever event you're looking for at a great price. Vivid Seats is the top source for tickets for all the live events you might want to go to. On their site, you can sort by price or look for seats in the section and row of your choice. You can pick the seat you want. To make things even better, Vivid Seats is giving listeners an exclusive promo code for new customers to receive 10% off your first ticket order to save even more money. Just go to the App Store or Google Play and download the Vivid Seats app. First-time customers can use promo code Rolling Stone. That's R-O-L-L-I-N-G-S-T-O-N-E for 10% off your first Vivid Seats order. Every purchase is backed by a 100% buyer guarantee. From the biggest concerts and games to the hottest theater and more, Vivid Seats has it all. Download the app and enter promo code Rolling Stone for 10% off your first order on Vivid Seats. Make a memory that lasts a lifetime and let Vivid Seats help you get to your favorite live event. I have in the studio Andy Green and Hank Steamer before we played some audio from my lengthy conversation with Neil from back in 2015. Now, that was for what turned out to be Rush's final tour, the R40 tour. It was on some levels meant to be their last tour, although they were hesitant to truly say it. Uh, my memory of reporting at the time is that sort of behind the scenes, I was basically being told this is probably it, but the band are hesitant to say it and the band aren't really sure, but it's probably at this weird sort of back and forth of like, is it the last? But one of the things Andy was saying that in the subsequent documentary, it really became clear certain things that, that were not evident to me at the time. Yeah. In the documentary, when they speak to Neil, he says that prior to the tour, he was calling a band meeting and he wanted to tell them that he didn't want to go on tour. But they told him that Alex's arthritis was starting to get bad in his fingers and the window was closing on when Alex, that he could play at the peak of his powers. So very reluctantly, he agreed to a pretty short tour. It was, it was like 38 dates or something. Yeah, Alex, Alex Lifeson, the guitar player, and uh, Getty Lee, who's, of course, a singer and bassist, were much more typical rock and roll creatures in the sense that they love touring, especially Getty. And could just go and go, and, and Neil was more reluctant. You know, so there was a bit of, of conflict there. All that said, by the time I got to them, they had been rehearsing. The rehearsals were going really well. They had this brilliant, fun idea of a set that goes in reverse chronological order, which 
honestly turned out to be one of the most satisfying rock and roll experiences I've ever had because as it gets down to, first of all, if you were a fan for a long time, you feel your own life kind of spinning backwards as it went back in reverse order. But then also there's that anticipation of knowing you're going to get to the 70s and 70s Rush was, as we all know, was a wild creature of its own. Yeah, and they changed the staging. So as they went back in time with the songs, that the backdrops changed to those tours. And then by the end, when they're playing Lakeside Park and those really early songs, it is a high school gym setting that they're playing in, which is really cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And I think other bands could do something along those lines. But I think basically they were really energized by it. And I think Neil was, I think I genuinely caught him in a moment of real optimism. I think he could imagine at that moment more tours, more albums, you know. Uh, he mentioned that they had talked about doing another covers album, although that hadn't come to anything. So there was hope. And the other thing is he, in the interview clip you just heard, he was talking about all the steps he was taking to avoid injury while playing the drums. And unfortunately, he did kind of get hurt on that tour, right? Yeah, I forget the details, but his foot was like really in agony through much of the tour. I think it was driving his motorcycle through the rain and there's water in his boots and the skin was like peeling off. You see in, in the documentary, so every beat of those drum pedals with his feet he was in pain through the whole tour it was like agony for him the thing is he was absolutely devoted to perfection and excellence he told a story about his dad uh his, his dad had, had a business when he was helping him out and you know cleaning a car doing whatever he would say dad can you check i, I finished is this good enough and what his dad would say his dad wouldn't even look at what he'd done his dad would say if it's perfect it's good enough and this is something that Neil took to heart. And so it must have been kind of painful for him to see, you know, for anything to start to interfere with his playing. And he couldn't face the idea of playing at anything other than his peak, as he suggested in, in the audio you just heard. He wanted to go out on top. And I think anyone who saw that tour could agree that he was playing very well. I mean, would that be your estimation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, th I think it's a, it's a really rare case, like whether it was intended to be the last tour or not, of like a band, you know, and I think I've heard Getty say this, where like, you know, really you know, ending with dignity in so many ways. Like, you know, the, it was a, it was a fantastic performance. And also, you know, their last album is, it was a really like meaty piece of work. You know, it was like, they go back to the sort of concept album format and, and, you know, they're really like digging into that whole thing and the songs really hold up. But there's just nothing about the end of Rush that has any kind of like fade about it. It was just so strong right to the end. And the final encore or the last concert at the Forum, they played Working Man, which was the first single, which even predates him. And he walked up to the front of the stage for a bow with the end, which he'd never done in his whole career. He says, that's not my territory. But at that show, he walked up, they took a big group bow, and, and like Getty was shocked by the moment because it was a violation of his rules. And it was a sort of a perfect ending, which even though... They wanted to keep going. It was very satisfying. I was strongly encouraged to fly out by the band's camp to fly out to L.A. to see that last show because uh, I'd been with them on a, on a tour and I just couldn't. I couldn't <laughs> justify just flying out to L.A. for a concert. But I should have realized by the emphasis they put on it that the band really had decided that that was it by that point, um, which I, I did kind of realize, to be honest. But well, but I, I wish I'd seen it. Is that's what, what Neil decided. Yeah. I've spoken to Getty and Alex afterwards, and they wanted to like, go to Europe and do more. It was very frustrating that it was... It was like the shortest tour ever, probably. Yeah, and they, and they kept that possibility out there for a while. Like in a lot of the interviews that 
you know, Andy, that you did with them. And like, it was always kind of this question and people were talking about, you know, are, are the two of them going to do something with someone else? Or like, mm -hmm. I don't know, th there was really not finality put on it until now in a way. Yeah. Part of the tragedy, of course, of all this is that Neil had just wanted to, as you heard him say, he just really enjoyed this quiet life of, <laughs> of a life that was like many of our lives where, you know, just waking up in the morning and going to an office for the day and then coming home to his family. He really genuinely wanted to do that. And he, he got off the road and, you know, really only had probably about eight to 12 months before he, he got his diagnosis of, of brain cancer, which is really rough to face. Yeah, because they haven't said much about his illness period, but they did say, that they said three and a half years. So that's really brutal to think about. And that means that, that it was probably less than a year from the tour ended until he got sick. To take a step back, I mean, so Neil Peart grew up in a suburb of Canada. He was a rebellious kid, a restless kid in the, the mass production zone, as he would call it, but became obsessed with drums. And despite being mostly self-taught, you know, is, is uh, pretty much universally recognized as one of the greatest rock drummers ever. Hank Steamer, who's with us today, wrote a, a great piece from a drummer's perspective about just what made Neil great. And you got really specific, but just maybe on the broadest level, he obviously his technical achievements were uh, massive. But what made him so admired as a drummer, Hank? Well, I think what made him special is, and this is something I wrote about a little bit, like around 1975, which is, you know, I believe when uh, when Fly By Night came out, it's the first time people are really sort of hearing what this guy can do. Like rock drumming was very well established. You know, you, you had kind of like these great backbeat drummers like Ringo or Charlie Watts or, you know, some of the more like jazz influenced kind of early hard rock stuff like Ginger Baker or even, you know, getting into John Bonham. And like a lot of that drumming, you know, there was kind of like a looseness to it, especially with Ginger and you know people like Bill Ward and Sabbath. There was kind of like this, you know, j kind of like this jazz thing happening. And it was kind of the idea of like these bands jamming or there being kind of like a looseness to the playing was really important to that whole tradition. And then like Neil comes along and it's just, it's just a totally different approach there's sort of like nothing left to chance in his playing and it's basically like approaching the drums in the drum parts as really like compositional the thing about rush drum parts that sets them apart from say like a great bonham beat or or a great you know ringo beat or some of these other people you know you could listen to you know 20 bootlegs of, of zeppelin you know playing black dog or something like that and you're going to hear like you know fills will be different or you know you've got a basic drum part but it's like you know the details are going to shift around according to sort of like the moment rush on the other hand you know and this is sort of obviously comes into its own more when neil joins the band but like there's really nothing left to chance in that music and especially in the drum parts they're, they're written essentially like compositions he did as far as i know he did not like write them down on paper but tom sawyer is a fixed piece of music the drum part to tom sawyer is not you know it's not like oh let's just you know jam and you know a lot, a lot of drumming sometimes the, the basic beat is there but you'll fill in little details kind of as you feel like it in the moment that was not the neil peart way well it's funny yeah he you talked know. about his sort of lack of ability as an improviser which is something he was trying to sort of rectify in all those jazz lessons later on i would argue and i think you kind of argued in, in your piece that that may have actually been an advantage in the end because it it caused him to compose these remarkable parts. 
Yeah, in the absence of, of those abilities, like you're saying, and you know, like you said, he did make sort of moves in, into, you know, kind of dip his toe into jazz in a few different ways. But like, ultimately, he had to embrace his strength, which was this like hyper control. And I think people will often talk about the, you know, I think there's a lot of fixation on, say, like the drum solos and kind of the virtuosity that to me, as a drummer, the solos are, are great. I, I appreciate it. But what's really fascinating is the parts he wrote in the songs, you know, the, the way that he was able, and he talked about this too, how the fact that he wrote the lyrics made him like, you know, intimately concerned with the theme of the song, the flow of the song. You know, he wasn't just like sort of back there, like, you know, worried about his own part and nothing else in the song. You know, a song like Subdivisions, obviously this, you know, extremely emotionally resonant song about kind of the difficulty of growing up and and, you know, fitting in and all that stuff. And then the drum part in that song, you know, basically every single verse has a different drum part. And so it, it's these tiny, you know, you could hear that song on the radio like 50 times or something like that. But then when you really sort of like get under the hood and like look at it, it's like the sort of the compositional depth of these drum parts is is basically unprecedented in rock music. I mean, it's almost like a classical approach because it's literally like writing you know, the the drum part is a composition unto itself, which is just very unusual in rock. Yeah, what you pointed out on subdivisions, the way that the the parts change verse by verse is fascinating. It's just so unusual. Yeah, like, like you just yeah. you just don't you know. And and again, you know, you 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 might hear like a you know a Zeppelin drum part where little flourishes are changing or something, but it's not like this scientific thing where it's like, all right, verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four, every one. I'm literally like almost like. I'm writing a new part for each one. And every time I perform that song for 30 plus years, I'm playing it identically. What I would compare yeah. it to almost is a cinematic thing where it's, it's like you, you realize that, you know, in the first part of the movie, we're using a color palette that's on blues, but, you know, as it gets darker, we turn to red. It's exactly that kind of thing. And it shows an intelligence and a creativity at work that's it's just on a, a different kind of level for him. And, and the, the other thing I was thinking about, and I, I think partially spurred by your piece and just thinking about is, it, well, first of all, it's so funny that, you know, Clockwork Angels as the final album, I mean, he sort of was a clockwork angel because there really is this sense of Rush songs and, and not just him, the whole band. There was this clockwork perfection to what they did. It was it was also precise and, and classically designed. And I really think of like Dr. Manhattan and Watchmen as a sort of metaphor here when he's remembering, you know, the, the little pieces of the clocks that his, of the watches that his dad would put together. It's a way of, of forcing order on the universe, not to be overly profound here, but I mean, if what music is right is, is imposing harmony on a disordered universe. That's why we like music because the world is disordered, but music pushes its pieces into a, into an order that's pleasing for us. And Rush took that to a level of, of like near insanity at moments that, that I think we love the most is when they, when they got craziest and, and the way that Neil would break down, things into 30 second notes and into inflections of 30 second notes and hyper syncopating parts that are already syncopated. Um, there's something just very profound and, and pleasing about that. And I, I can't help but see it in contrast to his views about the universe, which he thought quite vocally had no order or meaning. He thought the universe was a godless cosmos where everything was left to chance. And it's so fascinating that he would then <laughs> turn around and create an artistic universe in which uh, nothing was left to chance. In what might be the most pretentious song intro of all time, let's hear a little bit of Subdivisions. Mm -hmm. <laughs> It's 
idea. Obviously, I have to go and listen to the whole song to get the full effect that, that Hank was talking about. Uh, lyrically, uh, as we've both written about it, it's that song is a, a major transition for Rush, or part of a major transition. I get a huge kick, personally, would imagine both of you guys do as well, out of the early lyrics at the of the imagination and the sci-fi stuff of it. A great thing about Rush is that so many of the prog bands of the late 70s, they were doing songs that were complicated and based off of stuff that was like that. It was not Ayn Rand, but it was, you know, all these sci-fi stuff and everything. But Rush transitioned after punk and started and they were new songs and they were able to totally adjust to a new time period where like Jethro Tull and those kind of bands they, I wish, they were not I wish Jethro Tull had made new wave albums that would have been amazing or but, like, like yeah, Palmer or something you know? yeah but, and, and the cool thing too is that like it happens in stages like you know like permanent waves or moving pictures you know maybe we're going from like you know hemispheres or something where like a 20 minute so you're going kind of down to maybe like a 6 minute song right and, that's, and then you know as, as they progress further you know, like Grace Under Pressure, Hold Your Fires, so then it gets down to maybe they could actually do the kind of four-minute thing. They really, like, move through it methodically and took every stage of it seriously, you know? Yeah, and what's key about this is they were not writing pop, radio-friendly songs. They didn't write Heat of the Moment or something, and, like, Asia did. These are songs that were popular and were played on the radio, but that wasn't the goal. They were definitely not sellouts ever yeah um well, they, they pack so much detail into the two i mean like tom sawyer you know we sort of like normalized it but like you know we were playing it for some other people in the office who weren't so familiar with it like just how strange it is and just how much detail is sort of like packed into it you know and it's like you know it's compact it's catchy but it's like incredibly yeah. elaborate and what's key about that is the fans didn't feel betrayed whereas the fans of genesis were livid at like Invisible Touch and these type of songs, like these ballads that were put out by them in the 80s with Rush. They never did that. That's a really good point. You know, you will hear some discontent about some of the synthier stuff in, in the 80s. People differ on that. But for the most part, that's exactly true. Like People followed them through and, and nothing seemed like they were turning their back on what whatever was the core of what they did. And I think it's because of a few things. And I, I don't know, I don't know fully what led fans to follow them through almost all of the journey. I think some of it was just, as Neil would put it, it's really just a question of your honesty. And I think people didn't, never came to doubt the sincerity of what they're doing, even as synths came in. And I think even some of the, the sort of, I think what, what Getty called the, the sort of circus act aspects of like the fact that they never expanded beyond the trio, even though their sound did, you know, they were essentially making the sounds of like a five or six piece band, but refused uh, militantly to ever just, you know, just th- do the easiest thing, which is just get the guy in the corner playing the keyboard. You know, uh, this is separate from Neil, of course. But I mean, the fact is, you know, when the synth is being accomplished by having your bass player play bass with his feet, you tend to respect the grind you know i think that's part of the thing right and for most prog bands they're almost like baseball teams where it would change constantly there's so many people that's an interesting point they were in yes or in like king crimson is crazy there's six thousand people but with rush it's the same three guys and the purity of that to the fans was essential i think well it's weird rush managed to evolve like almost as much as yes but without completely changing their lineup yeah and that's it's also and this is a somewhat uh, familiar point, but as much as they somewhat struggled with the music business in the 70s, they still were lucky enough to be part of a business that would still give you 
you know, seven years or so from your first album to the first time you were starting to become make somewhat compact, somewhat radio friendly songs. It was there was an ability to evolve. Can you imagine an artist coming out now and getting seven years? Uh, it's just the, not the way the business uh, yeah, works I mean, they, anymore. They, yeah, they had all these chances to you know they they were given the the room to evolve like you know three or four times and you know and it's, it's like a real satisfying career arc. And yeah, it, it is really hard to imagine it happening today. And what they were able to do was put everything they learned and squeeze it down. And we're also, as Neil pointed out, they were young enough when the police and stuff came out that that they couldn't even he even said the word punk. They when the when the police and punk and new wave came out, they were young enough not to just like reject it, but to embrace elements of it and, and to reinvent themselves and, and put all that reggae in, into their rhythmic thrust without thankfully Getty ever trying to sing in patois or anything. But that did cause some friction. There were moments in which in which Alex thought that the synths were getting out. Of that hand. was yes, for sure. Alex talked to me a lot and has talked about this. That especially around the time of the album Presto, when he's playing a ton of acoustic guitar and stuff, it got frustrating. And then what's cool is they then got to make another turn in the '90s. Uh, we were talking in the break about how Rush obviously made a first album without Neil. It had a couple good songs on it, but their identity, the Rushness of Rush, really came in with Neil. Yeah, that if you play the first album, it's like a Canadian bad Led Zeppelin of sorts. <laughs> I do like Working Man, they're good songs, but it was very generic. And then they fired their drummer, who was like John Rutzi, or is it John Rutzi? Rutzi, yeah, it's John Rutzi, and then they hire Neil. And it's very unusual that a drummer for hire into a band that's very established, they've been around about seven years at that point or something, is the guy who takes over the band and writes all their lyrics and is their guiding light of their whole philosophy, basically. Yeah, his sort of very expansive ideas, both about playing, but, you know, th- that he would come into this band and uh, and write something like 2112, yeah. define the band. And, and we were saying that the other thing is that there is something, a very fortunate confluence that Neil's very strange for rock and roll lyrics. One thing that's interesting about his lyrics is they're not written in this sort of colloquial Americanism or like pseudo blues that most rock is written in. They're written in a sort of high flown uh, syntax. And he was saying that, especially early on, sometimes to the point of ridiculousness, to be honest. And, you know, he, he was laughing about it when I talked to him. He said, you know, he was probably reading too much like 19th century literature and, and taking the the syntax of that and putting it to a rock context. And it wouldn't have worked if it was like Paul Rogers from Bad Company singing these lyrics. Right. You need a weird singer. It's just all coincidence. They didn't know that the drummer they hired, that he could write lyrics, and he wouldn't know that the kind of lyrics in which he could write would be so perfectly suited to Getty. It's just this weird fate that happened. Yeah, and then I think the kind of like eccentricity of the writing, you know, grew to meet the weirdness of the lyrics. You know right. what I mean? It's like once you get to time of like Farewell to Kings, it's like, you know, Cygnus X1 or something like that. It's like no other band could have written that, and they're completely detached from that like sort of Zeppelin area of things. They're not even playing on that field anymore, you know? And then, so as we're saying in the in the eighties, it got kind of synthier and synthier. But there, you know, I, I I think Hank and I particularly are fans of all those albums. That's when I you know first became a Rush fan. But Presto was a point of for Alex Lifeson. It was a little wimpy because Alex is the kind of the rock and roll of the band. In some ways, he's a stoner, very proudly so. He doesn't love rehearsing as much as everyone else. He's not obsessed with perfection. He's just a looser guy and, and so key to the, the overall 
thing of the band. Without them, they would be so... I think they'd be in danger of being some kind of like robotic bludgeoning prog thing without the looseness and awesomeness of, of Alex. So, But then in, in the 90s, as music more broadly became guitar heavy again and and, uh, and grunge came in, they started to really rock again, right? Yeah, I mean, Counterparts is one of their heaviest records, and I think that quality only like ramps up in the next like decade or so. Um, Vapor Trails, obviously, you know, you listen to the first track on that one little victory. It's come out with this like insane double bass and you know almost like thrash metal. Oh, I love that. It's just, I mean, that that's as satisfying for me as any as any full drum solo. Like the, just a couple bars of that. Is yeah, so it's sick. yeah. I mean, he had said that he was a little bit shy about sort of coming out of the gate like that, but Getty encouraged him to open the song like that. And you know, it's really awesome to hear him really unleash, especially since that was right after he, he had taken a break from the band after suffering those unimaginable losses. But then Clockwork Angels too. You know, that song like Bu2B or something like that. It, again, the, the heaviness is they really went out kind of at their heaviest in some ways. Like like which is awesome. Yeah, which is great. Like you know they. They really like reclaim that like rock power, you know. Let's just yeah, here we go. So, yeah, there is something really, really satisfying uh, uh, about that because once again they defy the, any conventional arc for a rock band. It, they start out super heavy and super sprawling, get tight and, and somewhat popular, and but then go back and in some ways rock harder than ever before. Yeah, and if you look at the vast majority of their career, if it's outside of the spotlight of any real attention that there's a short period around moving pictures and in their final five years when there's the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and that documentary and all the attention on them. But besides that, this is a group that was playing arenas and was putting albums out that totally removed out of mainstream culture. Yeah, and since we're running out of time, I, I you know I just want to say Neil Peart was a fascinating human being and a very admirable one. I really love his uh, something he would say to himself, which is, "What is the most excellent thing I could do today?" And you can do a lot in a lifetime. Uh, he wrote for the song Marathon. And he really did. And I think he is. Uh, he said people shouldn't have heroes, but I think he is an example in, in many ways that that people could follow. And uh, I would say that uh, getting Alex. Said if uh, you know you're mourning for uh, Neil Peart, you, you might want to consider a donation to a, a cancer charity. So I'll repeat that. But that's been today's show. This is uh, Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt. I've been in the studio with Hank Schemer and Andy Green. Thanks for joining me. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's Volume Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you get a minute. Or a mean, crazy one. We read those too. But nice ones are preferred. But as always, thanks for listening. And we'll definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.